When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about critical race theory. So I wanted to touch on this topic because it's been kind of waning in and out of the news, and you know, as I've said before, I, I do occasionally like to touch on topics that are more, um, you know, current, more more in the zeitgeist, if you will. Um, and I wanted to approach this from a place of, first of all, kind of dispelling misconceptions about what critical race theory is actually about, um, and to also kind of address the reasons why we might be seeing critical race theory coming up in the news in the way that it is coming up in the news. Um, and what are the kind of like psychological underpinnings behind why people react to learning about critical race theory in a, in a certain way. Um, and so, you know, to, to, to just be very transparent, um, I have taken critical race theory classes in my undergraduate career um, and have read material from critical race theorists in my graduate career as well. Um, And so I would say that I agree (laughs) with the tenets of critical race theory for the most part and do find it to be um, to be very useful for me in, you know, both clinical and academic work. But that is kind of the bias that I am coming at this with is, is that I, you know, I tend to agree with some of these authors and find their work very influential. Um, but all that to say that I wanted to still kind of present, like, what is this about? Um, and if you maybe find yourself or find people in your life who react very strongly to even the concept of critical race theory, I wanted to provide a little bit more of information and to help you kind of understand um, why this is happening. <laughs> um, so let's just jump into it. So so why am I talking about this right now? Um, and, and one of the reasons is that, like I said, it's it's been kind of at the forefront of conversations, particularly around school curriculum. It's getting wrapped up in kind of like the anti-mask, COVID-denying school board like fervor that that you've probably been seeing clips of either online or or in the news um and interestingly enough as of july 2021 so july of this year 28 states in the u.s had passed some form of legislation that specifically dictated how teachers can talk about social issues in the classroom so that doesn't necessarily mean that all of these legislator legislations have said specifically that you cannot use critical race theory but they are kind of dancing around this by saying teachers can only talk about certain things in certain ways or can't even bring up certain topics like anti-racism in those school settings in those states. Um, There is 
a lot of criticism about critical race theory that you may have seen, um, particularly that critical race theory is is like infecting public schools and that um, CRT is any type of education approach that challenges the traditional history of what we might call white America and reveals information that maybe have formerly been glossed over um, in in school curriculum. Um, and so, you know, when you hear somebody complaining about CRT, most often they're, they're using that as like a blanket term to say um, any type of conversation that addresses race, um, which is not true like critical race theory and I'm going to get into it more like what it is but it is a very specific focus on race in a way that is is more specific than this just this argument of like pointing out um like discrepancies in history um some of the criticism about critical race theory is that it's also trying to undermine trust among American citizens that's trying to tear down traditional American ideals um and is sort of a um, is in itself racist, right? So there are even some people who say that critical race theory is itself racist uh, because of its focus, its alleged focus on whiteness. Um, and this is not true. Um, and in this article by Kaplan and Owings, which came out this year, um, it, it's just fundamentally not true, the criticisms that are made about CRT. And the reality is that this the reality is that people don't see reality in the same way, and this, um, uh, like, d- bias, this almost like, um, like obstacle to seeing CRT the way that it it really is, is actually contributing to the very thing that critics are alleging is that it's contributing to this undermining of trust in government, in democracy, and in each other. Um, and, and I encourage you, it, it'll be on my sources page, but this article by Kaplan and Owings is, is, I think, particularly interesting for educators, um, because they do talk about the role of principals in, um, mediating this impact. Um, but anyway, they, they are talking about how, uh, when you hear these arguments about CRT, you kind of see that, um, the people making the arguments are, are, just have a different view of, like, the reality. Like, they're not able to look at actual... CRT works or those authors and like evaluate them for what they are, they're operating out of this different reality and that mismatch between opponents versus supporters is undermining our ability to work together. Um, And this kind of I think is related to some of the stuff in my conspiratorial thinking episode which was one of my first episodes I did. Um, That was the first full episode um, where this like this distrust in each other and large, more largely distrust of the government kind of undermines our ability to function as a democracy. And I think we can all agree that that's not a great thing. Um, and so I would say that this information just helps us to see that the conversation about critical race theory is, is more a symptom of this kind of... Um, inability of people to trust each other and and to get along um but it's a symptom that also exacerbates the problem so it just really throws us into this pretty rough cycle um so my stance is that if you know what crt actually is it allows you to not get swept up in these like emotional or rational arguments right like 
I think sometimes what happens is you hear people saying like CRT is teaching our children to be Marxist and to hate themselves and if you don't really know what it is you can't say that's wrong <laughs> and you kind of get swept up in the emotional side of it right or of like trying to convince someone that they shouldn't be afraid, which is a losing battle <laughs> until you're hit that right now. You're never going to win that battle. Um, so you're automatically uh, like not going to win an argument when you're, when you're, you're not like fully informed. Um, and so I think having more people know like concretely what critical race theory and more importantly, what it is not allows us to diffuse the issue and you know, not get swept into arguments about it. And if we're able to diffuse this issue, then I think it's possible that we can diffuse other types of culture war issues and actually engage in discussions about things that that are more important, like, like climate change or the impact of our economy on the middle and working class and how, how devastating it has been. So, you know, instead of and I know that I'm kind of contradicting myself by focusing on CRT right now, but instead of focusing on like trying to fight about these very like insignificant culture war um you know nitpicky topics and getting sucked into them because we don't really know where we're you know we don't really know what they are and we're trying to kind of fight them or discuss them on a uh uneven playing field what if we just didn't do that right what if we just knew what we were talking about and we're able to confidently say like no that 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 is wrong that's not what CRT is, um, and let's move on to talking about something else. So, that's just more of, of why I want to talk about this topic. And I and an interesting thing that I also wanted to bring up is that this type of outrage about critical race theory it is not new. <laughs> um, and I'm going to talk more about like the history of critical race theory, but it, it really was flourishing in the 80s and 90s. And in the 1990s, um, Dr. Derek Bell, one of the founders of critical race theory and, and, and the theory or the way of thinking wrote an article titled who's afraid of critical race theory, um, which was a response to, um, actually people who were supporting the book, the bell curve, which if, if you've never heard of it, it was a, a book published by two, uh, I'm going to say sketchy fellas, <laughs> um, who used IQ data in, a not particularly ethical way to prove that there are differences between racial groups on IQ values and that white people are like more uh, like um, intelligent than other racial groups. It was a, it's, it's not a good book. <laughs> like it's not a, it's not good science. It's not supported. Um, and people were attempting to use it, you know, in this like cultural milieu in the 1990s, we're trying to use this book, um, to like counter concepts around critical race theory. And so then critical race theorists were having to respond. So all of that to say, like, this is not something that just happened in 2021. And it is interesting to see how history repeats itself. And we are living the nineties again, um, <laughs> culturally. Um, but that critical race theory has long had critics and has survived um, and has, you know, continued to grow and adapt to the, the, you know, the changing academic landscape. And frankly, I just think it's funny. (laughs) I just think it's funny that we, we're still doing this. We're still doing this, uh, you know, 20 years later. Um, So 
I don't know, maybe the advent of podcasts will help <laughs> change the cycle a little bit. Okay, so I think I've laid out pretty thoroughly why I want to talk about critical race theory, but I'm missing a very important piece here, which is what is critical race theory? <laughs> so at its very core, critical race theory is the study of race from a legal perspective. So basically, how have the social constructs of race been embedded in our legal systems? Um, and so the reason why it comes from a legal perspective is it grew out of the legal field, specifically for civil rights lawyers who were kind of stalling in the 70s in the progress they were able to make in gaining rights for people. Um, and this was a way of examining inherent equality in systems to make better cases for discrimination against clients. Um, so it, it, it starts to develop in the 70s and really kicks off in the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and it makes sense, right, of, of kind of where we were at in the country in regards to things like race, in the, especially in the 70s, was kind of the volatility of the 60s had led to the Civil Rights Act being passed, which was at the time considered to be like icing on the cake. We did it. We solved, we solved racism. Um, you know, we solved discrimination or whatever. And um, you know, marginalized people were still like, well, wait a minute, we're, we're still not getting treated right. Uh, and in fact, these large legal and systems and institutions are continuing to not treat us right. So how do we go about making the case that we're being discriminated against, even though there are laws in the books that say we shouldn't be discriminated against? So critical race theory was like a way to examine these systems and make the case legally that discrimination is still happening. Um, so some of the originators, like I said, Derek Bell, who wrote the Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory article, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, so if you're familiar with the concept of intersectionality, she helped develop that. Um, she was uh, formative in, in developing CRT. Cheryl Harris, Richard Delgado, Patricia Williams, Gloria Ladson-Billings, and Tara Yasso, and, and many more. Um, and so those were some of the, the authors who, who helped... Um, really kicked this theory off in the 80s and 90s and, and help it flourish. And of course, there are many more authors nowadays who still engage with this. But if you're on the internet <laughs> looking up critical race theory articles, a lot of them are going to be legal briefs, which I'm going to be honest with you, if you're not a law guy, you're not a lawyer, uh, are hard to read. <laughs> They're very boring. <laughs> They're very long. They have so many footnotes that sometimes there will be like one paragraph of actual text on the page because legal briefs will use like 10,000 footnotes, um, which is fine. That's their style of writing and I'm not a lawyer so I don't need to know how to do that. Um, but I'm just saying that like if you if you find yourself pulled to like look for more information about it, you may become very overwhelmed because it is a very highly academic field. Now, it has, again, adapted throughout the years, and we there are now um, approaches for critical race theory in regards to like education. Other studies uh, have developed like Asian American studies, African studies, um, critical queer theory, critical feminism. So a lot of these, a lot of um, would have been considered more like radical or outsider theories have developed out of CRT because of the work that these original authors have done. So some of it is more accessible now, but these like original papers are, are very academic, are very legal, um, 
and and that makes sense because that's the origin um, of the theory. So one of the kind of inciting incidents, particularly for Dr. Derek Bell, was that he wanted to make sense of why Brown versus Board of Education had been passed in 1954, which out, which outlawed um, segregation in public schools. It said public schools had to desegregate. You had to let white children and black children go to school together. Why after that law was there still racial discrimination um, and after the Civil Rights Act, why was there still racial discrimination in public places of people of color? And he and and some of the other authors at the time began to argue that law is not actually inherently objective or apolitical. And that just because something is on the books as a law does not mean that it is inherently unbiased, right? Because who wrote the law? People. And people are full of bias, are not objective, and are deeply political. So the people, we have to understand that like what we are enshrined into our legal code, it does not become objective and apolitical because it has been enshrined, right? That it is a product of the people in the time that they are creating the law. So if you really want to boil down CRT to like the basic pitch, it's just kind of examining potential bias in systems and taking yourself outside of this mind view that the legal system specifically is fallible, right? Or is infallible. It is inherently fallible. Um, so within this this concept as as well, CRT legal scholars. Um, saw that racism is not just a relic of the distant past, but it is something that can, that is still visible within the law and that the law can be used to deepen and increase racial inequality. Or the opposite could be true. It could be used as a tool to secure racial equality. So many CRT people believe that um, you can change laws to become agents of racial equality, that it doesn't have to be this way, right? That that although our current legal system may be inherently racist or unfair, it does not have to remain that way. And I think maybe sometimes that also is where people get stuck, is they feel that, well, this CRT thing is pointing out all these things that are wrong, um, so we, we must just be wrong, right? We're always wrong. Everything is wrong. But the, the reality is, is that CRT scholars... Um, particularly legal scholars, are working toward finding ways of working with the law to make it more equal. And that truly that benefits everybody, right? That It's not just that it's, you know, it's not that they're changing the law to bring white people down, but it is to make everything more equal or, or more equitable for everyone in the society, that the law can be applied in a way that does not target or leave out certain groups of people, which I think on its, I think when you boil it down to that level, we, we, a lot of people can agree with that, right? That we want our laws to be reflective of our values that people are equal and have access to equal rights, right? If that's truly our American ideal, then that's, that is what we want. Um, so what are some of the key tenets of um, critical race theory? So I just pulled these from the American Bar Association magazine um, because 
I thought that was the most relevant because it is a legal theory. So the American Bar Association is for lawyers. Um, so they, they highlighted four. Um, one, they, they say that CRT recognizes that race is not biologically real, but is socially constructed and socially significant. So if you've never heard this before, um, there is scientific research, there is a wealth of scientific research that demonstrates that there is no identifiable genetic or biological difference between racial groups, and in fact, most of the genetic and biological diversity occurs within racial groups. So it is more likely that I am genetically different from another white person than I am from a black person or a you know, person or an Asian person, right? I'm, I'm more likely to be different than people of my own race. Um, the second is that they acknowledge that racism is a normal feature of society and is embedded within systems and institutions. So th this basically means that critical race theory dismisses the idea that like racial incidents are not necessarily the uh, bug <laughs> of the the system but are actually a feature of the system so that the system is built so that racist incidents continue to happen and not that they're just happening on their own volition. Um, the third one is that they reject popular understandings of racism such as arguments that confine racism to a few bad apples. So uh, related to the last content or tenant, right? CRT recognizes that racism is embedded into these systems um, and so when something happens that is racially motivated, it's not just because of the one individual in the system who holds certain ideas, but it is because the system facilitates that. And I think this comes up the most when we talk about policing, where people may be feel pulled to make the argument that someone who engages in police brutality against a person of color is just a bad apple, when the reality is, is that the system built around law enforcement does does not inherently condone racist activity, right? In fact, may even support it. And so it is it is not that this one person has made this decision to be racist, although your own biases and, and culture and background contribute, but it is that the system um, bears the, the, the responsibility for reproducing the racial inequality that leads to the racist incident. So, and I, I think it's really important to highlight this one. And this is this is complicated. And so, if you are feeling like, what is she talking about? Like, <laughs> I, I get it. And please feel free to email me or or you know connect with me on social media so that you can um, you know let me know what your questions are. Um, but I, I think that this actually is such an interesting way of looking at it because it it does take the responsibility off of the individual, not fully, right? But it does take some of the responsibility off of the individual and says, look, let's look at these systems and how do these systems put you in a position where being racist is really the only way to make it, right? Um, which I think is, is an argument that people who are so, that feel so upset about critical race theory might actually benefit from, right? And, and benefit from understanding this. And again, this developed out of the legal system. So a lot of it is focused on the legal system, although there are theorists who work particularly like in the education system. And the last uh, tenant is that recognition of the relevance of people's everyday lives to scholarship. So one of the key features of critical race theory is that it is not good enough to just do 
academic work, right? To just do philosophical, legal, psychological research, but that it is important to include the lived experiences of people of color. So in one way, that means having people of color involved in this this type of work or in making these recommendations, but it also means of including other types of information when considering um, academic work, right? So maybe that means listening to people who engage in more indigenous types of wisdom, right, or, or knowledge keeping, and not just dismissing it because it's not the type of knowledge keeping that you are used to, right? So CRT not only says, like, let's focus on the way that systems hurt people, but let's also expand the way in which we learn about people. So I also wanted to share um, my personal experience with CRT and and some of the ways that I found it so valuable. Um, I mean, one of the ways was that when I first took a critical race theory in my undergraduate class, uh, I was still deciding what I wanted to do after I finished my bachelor's in psychology. One of the things that I was feeling drawn to was forensic psychology, and so taking critical race theory, which was a, a, a law class, like a pre-law class, was so interesting to me, um, and it really highlighted for me like the importance of understanding legal precedent and how that impacts how I can better help people that I'm working with, um, and also how it impacts my life, right? It's, it's just, it, it is interesting to know these things. Um, and one of the things that really stuck out to me was that one day we were learning about basically the history of how different racial groups in America came to be legally recognized as white. And we were reading through several case examples about that particularly contrasted like Japanese people versus Mexican people. And so the history of Mexican people being classified as white, and this is why you, when you fill out a, like a census thing or anything that asks you about like your race and ethnicity, when you look at the racial groups box, typically they don't say anything about being like Hispanic or Latino, right? They, it's like, it'll be like white, black, Asian, other, right? That's usually like the standard limited choices. And then there'll be a second box which says check here if you are Hispanic white or non-Hispanic white. Okay, so that it's it's in a, a different box and this is why. So America <laughs> was created, right? In 1776 and as people began to expand to the west and colonize new areas and then you know, bring them to be introduced as states, um, a large portion of what is now the United States was inhabited by Mexican people, right? Or particularly people who, some some who were indigenous, right? Some who were not indigenous because of the colonization in, in Central America as well. But either way, a large portion of America had been claimed by Spain um, and then sold to America. And so, the, but those people who lived in those places were what today we call Mexican people. So when states like Texas and California were entering into the union, um, there was a lot of conversation about who could become a citizen in these new states, 
right? Because now it's part of America, so who is a citizen? And previously, there had been all of this legal precedent that the only way you could become a citizen was if you were white. This is true. You could only be an American citizen if you were white. And so, but there were tons of people who were living in these states who were part of the fabric of the society. We didn't really have super strong borders at that time. In fact, for a lot of America's history, we did not have very strong borders between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, this the, the way that it's built now is, is very unique um, in regards to history. But anyway, we didn't have super strong borders. There were all these people who, you know, one day after like the signing of a piece of paper went from being Mexicans to being Americans. And people had to wrestle with like, what do we do with these people <laughs> that now live in a United States territory or a state, um, but are not white and are making up the fabric of, of these societies. So several legal <laughs> meanderings happened. And essentially what happened was that people who were from Mexico were deemed to be racially white. So you could become a citizen if you were from Mexico because you were a white person. However, as we moved into the civil rights era, people who were Mexican were legally classified as white, so they couldn't sue for discrimination on a racial basis because their race was was white. So you could, it was like, how are you going to say that a white person is discriminating against another white person? Then it's not discrimination, it's just harassment or assault or whatever, you know, whatever. Not to say that that meant the white people could just do whatever they wanted to Mexican people, but you couldn't then use this extra um, like legal precedent of, of discrimination on a racial basis. So the caveat was you're, the Mexican people are technically white, <laughs> which means they're supposed to get all of the rights that white people are afforded, right, for, for most of history. But then when we get to a time where the rights of others are, of non-whites are increasing, Mexican people, and later largely the Latino or Hispanic community, we're not equal, we're not able to be protected to the same ability because they were racially the same <laughs> as other white people. So that became a really big problem. And then it also became very difficult for anyone to get a handle on how many Mexican or Latino people lived in each place, right? So when you went to go to do the Census Bureau, all of these people would have been categorized as white. So but but the reality is is, is that they're not right they're, they're they're not treated like other white people um and so then we came up with this this side box where we would say well are you hispanic or non-hispanic and that was supposed to be a way to not concede that these this group is not white <laughs> but to also categorize them in a way where you could get funding for having a certain amount of you know hispanic or latino people um, without relinquishing this, like, legal precedent. So, in the, like, especially in the, like, 1940s, up until the 1940s, a lot of racial groups tried to go the same way and to sue and to say, I, we should be considered to be white because we want to be citizens. So, because for a very long time you had to be white to be a citizen. So, you know, there's this group of, of Mexican people who were considered white so they could be citizens, but then there are all these other groups that were like, well, we want to be white too, so we can be citizens because we live here, we've immigrated, we've settled our lives, and we want to be citizens. So 
there were cases of people from Syria who, before they, before these legal precedents, were not considered white, right? Were considered to be people of color and were marginalized on that basis. They sued, and the legal precedent established that if you came from Syria, you, or Persia, I think it was Persia, the Persia, it was Persia at the time, uh, you would be considered white. Um, same thing happened with, like, Italian people. Like, a lot of these groups that, you know, back in the day, there would be, like, really intense racism against, like, the Irish, um, basically had to sue and set legal precedent that they are white. So, in the 1940s, Japanese people tried to do the same thing, to say, like, hey, we want to be citizens, we own, particularly in California, it's like we own farms, we own land, and we want to be citizens to have the rights and to be protected based on our role as citizens. And they weren't able to get protection as Asian people, so they sued to become white. And many people were rejected. Judges said, no, you're not white, and a lot of it was based on this idea that whiteness is a specific set of characteristics, right, of like physical characteristics. Um, and this is also where the idea of the term Caucasian came from, right, that you had to come from this Caucasus region in Europe, and that meant that you were like truly a white person, so you could you excluded all the Japanese people because they couldn't be from the Caucasus regions, which is crazy because like white people come from a, t a ton of other places <laughs> aside from the, the Caucasus mountains. That's another reason why you might not want to identify as Caucasian because it's like based in this like very racist history. Um, but that's maybe for another episode. So all of that to say, all of that winding information to say that like these were things that I learned in critical race theory. Now, Am I going to teach an elementary school child this? No, because it's so confusing and it was like really difficult even in undergrad, but it was so valuable to my education, particularly as I moved into graduate school, because it made me question a lot of the systems that I'm a part of and to try to understand like where is the racism or even like sexism or and, you know, other isms, where are they built into these systems and how can I be more aware of them and more effectively advocate for changes to these systems, whether it's the legal system, the mental health system, the education system, healthcare, whatever. Um, and, and so I share all of that to say, like, you know, to say why I'm so passionate about it, but also to show you that, like, there is absolutely no way that this is being taught in K through 12 public schools. <laughs> There's no evidence that that's happening at all. And, and you just saw how long it took me to describe to you something that I learned in like one class, right? One class of like a whole, a year long course. So it, it's very intensely complicated legalese, like legal perspectives, all of this stuff. Um, and so it's not being taught to children because it's just, it's, it's impossible to teach to children. Like you can't really boil it down beyond that. Um, and that it is the, the, again, the main reason for it is to point out how racism is built into systems, right? Like all those examples of people having to sue to become white, to become a citizen, just points out the ineffective nature of the legal system, particularly around I, defining citizenship. So that's why I share that. And also, I really like telling people that story because people are always like, oh, that's why <laughs> there's two questions <laughs> on the demographics. Um, weird, we should change that. But it's 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 really hard to change. And that also is the nature of CRT, right? Is pointing out that it's hard to change these things because they're so baked in. So 
how did we get to where we are today, where this, this theory that was largely popular in the late 80s, 90s, is sort of getting highlighted again, and why is it getting all this focus? So here's the timeline. In 2019, something called the 1619 Project was published. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it, it was a, a collection of essays, podcasts, and curriculum guides created by the New York Times, which posits that American history doesn't just begin in 1776, but actually begins in 1619 when the first slaves, first enslaved people were brought to America. So the, the educational guides that were created were meant to supplement curriculum. So it was never meant to completely replace any public school's curriculum. It was more more so geared as like a guide for teachers who wanted to include this type of information in their curriculum. Um, and in all honesty, when the 1619 Project was released, there were critics from the right and, and also from the left. Um, and both sides were in agreement that this was not a replacement, it was a supplement. Um, However, where they differed was that people on the left were like, yes, supplement away, whereas people on the right were like, mm, maybe you shouldn't use this to supplement curriculum. Um, and that's sort of where the like bubbling, the bubbling up of criticism began. So l later on in 2020, the Trump administration publishes something called the 1776 Project, which is a direct rebuttal, right? Because if the 1619 Project is saying, American history didn't start in 1776. This project was saying it did. Um, it was dismissed as highly inaccurate by the American Historical Society and was like littered with like actual spelling mistakes. Um, if you ever read it, it's woefully unprepared, underprepared, <laughs> um, and was criticized heavily by by, by many people. And, and in reality, the the criticism of the 1619 project was more due to some interpretations of historical events and the, like some very nitpicky things about like words that authors in, involved in the project use when they could have used different language and so you know overall uh, good faith criticisms of it were were not that bad right were were quite minor however sometime in 2020 a gentleman by the name of Christopher Rufo learned about CRT after having anti-racist training materials sent to him by uh, an employee who was unhappy about having to learn how to not be racist at work. So they sent these materials to Rufo. Rufo picks through all of the footnotes, one of which like cited CRT. It, like the, the materials themselves were not about CRT, but one of, one of the sources was like citing CRT. Again, a footnote. Nobody reads these footnotes unless you're like a freak lawyer, which good for you. <laughs> you should. You should. Um, so based on this footnote, Rufo wrote a series of articles and began to go on to the news, tying very loose, loose definitions of CRT and wrongly attributing them to Marxism. Um, attributing those to the the wave of anti-racist action brought on by movements around the country responding to police brutality right so the summer of 2020 had seen this like very intensive uh social justice and anti-racist political and social movement kind of rise up people were in the streets people were protesting people were examining their role in racism and learning about things like redlining and other elements of systemic racism and Rufo was like oh it's all because of CRT and they're all Marxists which 
I'm not going to get into it too much right now. And although there are CRT theorists who also adhere to certain principles of Marx, the original authors were not intending CRT to be inherently Marxist, and in fact, because it is based on the legal system, it's not necessarily always addressing economic principles, which is what Marxist theories are about. They're about the political principles. So Rufo made this like bad faith connection that, that isn't really there um, in the broadest sense of, of the word. Um, and of course, because he was going on cable news, President Donald Trump saw him and began to adopt this language of anti-critical race theory, and it snowballed into the movement that we have today. Now, I'm going to be transparent and say that I did read one of Rufo's papers on CRT, which pops up on Google Scholar when you type in um, critical race theory, which I don't think that it should be allowed on Google Scholar because it has absolutely zero citations. I, I, I didn't read every word, but I skimmed <laughs> I skimmed the paper and I, I read most of it, but I, and then I, not a single citation, nothing to back up any of his claims, no evidence. He writes mostly about his feelings um, and like vague connections that he's making between concepts. And it, it's clear from reading his paper that he is not even attempting to legitimately engage with the tenets and content of CRT. Like, he doesn't address any of those four tenets that I uh, told you about earlier. No con no attempt. Um, and he also gets the timeline of the theory wrong, and it says that it was invented in the 90s, when reality is, is that it, it was invented in the 70s and just became more popular um, in the 1990s. So, you know, there are no citations. You get the timeline wrong. You didn't do your research. And I bring this up because... If you go to Google critical race theory right now and you want to go to Google Scholar because you're, you know, trying to have good faith and um, engage with the sources, somebody like th this paper is going to show up um, and it should not be there because it is not empirical. It is not peer reviewed. It's actually posted to his website um, and it is uh, it's an illegitimate and disrespectful attempt to engage with content that um, he gets wrong. And so I just caution you, uh, and as we've been talking about in, in many of these episodes about, you know, how to be careful about the research that we read, um, and how to engage with research with a grain of salt. Um, and so I do caution you because I, I felt very angry when I saw his article pop up on Google Scholar and for it to be you know, not in the vein of the information that is typically found on what is considered to be at least a, a, a slightly academic source. Um, and, and I felt that that's, that that's not very fair to people who are attempting to do actual research, right, or attempting to, to find evidence and, and engage with a specific type of content. Um, so that's just my little warning and my little tangent um, about how the person who is almost largely responsible for the perpetration of this anti-CRT movement is um, essentially lying <laughs> and engaging in bad research. Um, and that there are people behind this movement whose intents are to be harmful and are not intending to legitimately engage with content that has areas of critique that can be critiqued. And in fact, the nature of academic work is to be critiqued. Um, but this is not a critique. This is just um, a witch hunt. <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of like the 
the microcosm of, of how we got to to the the conversation that we're at today and you can see how if like you only listen to people like Christopher Rufo and then go out to repeat these talking points at school board meetings or on interviews or whatever um, when asked what is critical race theory you're not gonna know because he doesn't know right he doesn't tell you and so my hope is that if you listen to at least the first half of this episode you know now that critical race theory is an examination of systemic racism through through the legal perspective um, and it acknowledges that racism is systemic that racism is socially constructed um, and that people's lived experiences are valuable additions to academic work right there you go there's another soundbite for you <laughs> if you forget <laughs> there's your summary so how does all of this relate to psychology <laughs> right? That's the point of my podcast. Um, and, I, and I mentioned before that, that I found that critical race theory was very helpful because it helped me to understand how systems impact people in a way that, that influenced how I, I approach treatment. Um, and so one of the ways that, that that works is that I think CRT is combined really easily with something called the social ecological model, which is associated with uh, Broffenbrenner, uh, a a systems theory psychologist um, who I believe published the the first look or the the more com- most complete look of the social ecological model in 1992, um, and the so the main tenet of the social ecological model is that individuals do not live in a vacuum and are in fact impacted by each level of culture around them, from their immediate family to the local community to the national level. So, who the president is what kind of laws are being passed influence you, the individual, as well as you do have influence on them, in the same way that your immediate family influences you. Well, you know, not necessarily to the same extent, but in the same way that your family or your neighborhood influences you and you influence them. And so you can see how CRT helps us to understand the systems that people live in and how they contribute to mental health outcomes. So for example, one of the things that comes up a lot in, in critical race theory work is the concept of redlining, right? Where neighborhoods that had a red line drawn around them were considered to be neighborhoods where banks would not give mortgages because they were considered to be largely neighborhoods of, of people of color, right? And areas that were outside of the red line that were considered to be white neighborhoods, that's where you could secure a mortgage. So how does that, how does understanding the concept of redlining and how that is a inherently racist policy built into the housing market, how does that influence mental health? So imagine that you are somebody who is unable to secure housing for your family. That stress of not being able to secure housing and of coming to understand that it is because of your racial identity, because you see people in the same life stage, same life situation as you, but who are of a different racial group, being able to secure housing, stable housing that is also an investment, a way to build wealth, this discrepancy between your access to resources, your access to specific types of resources, will have an impact on your mental health. It'll increase your stress, and stress is related to a lot of mental health outcomes like increased anxiety, increased depression, um, increased disordered eating, you know, all of these different things, and also physical health consequences, right? As we have more cortisol in the body, um, because we're constantly under stress, we can have an increase in in heart disease and and other types of, 
of long-term chronic illnesses. Um, so understanding how redlining works can help you as a mental health professional or just a person who cares <laughs> to understand why somebody who is of a, diff of a specific marginalized racial group why they may have more things stacked against them that is contributing to their mental health. So when I'm working with people and they are of racial groups that are not white, that's something that I consider, right? It's like how difficult it is for this person to access certain resources that I don't even have to think about accessing. It's just available to me because of the color of my skin. Um, CRT and psychology can also help us to consider the notion that, or to reject the notion that whiteness is the default, right? So that when we're working with people who are not white, we're not inherently comparing them to whiteness and saying, well, you should be like this, right? When we do psychological research, you should be adhering to this type of principle or this way of behaving. Um, and, and the relationship between CRT and psychology is actually bi-directional. So psych psychological research has been used in law cases to demonstrate that discrimination can have a negligent impact on well-being, particularly when it is weaved into the environment rather than an explicit overt incidence. And, and one of the examples of this is actually Brown versus Board of Education. It wasn't a huge part that it played, but the doll study designed by Mamie Phipps Clark and her husband Kenneth Clark um, was used as a footnote in the Brown versus Board of Education legal case, um, which demonstrated that segregation in schools set black children up to be more likely to believe that they are ugly and that they are bad children. Um, and they, they showed that with the doll study, which is uh, an episode I can do <laughs> later. It's a really an interesting story. Um, but that was psychological research that demonstrated the systemic impact of segregation in the education system on children of color, particularly black children, and how that outcome was very different from white children. So how can psychology also help us to understand why people get so upset about critical race theory? So one of the things is that we as human beings do not like any change to the status quo. We just really do not like it. And critical race theory represents a shift in the belief that history should be optimistic and that it should inspire patriotism, uh, particularly the way that history is taught to children in schools. And this belief actually, in this Kaplan and Owings article, this belief actually traces back to the American Legion in 1925, saying that public school curriculum should be based around this idea that history inspires patriotism in children and is optimistic, right? It doesn't focus on the negatives, <laughs> only focuses on sort of like the, the innovation and the good things that America has done. And, and since 1925, very few updates have been made to curriculum approaches. So for almost 100 years, <laughs> The like underlying philosophy of the way that we teach children about social studies or about history is that it should be inspiring patriotism. It should not make you feel bad. It should make you feel good about the country that you live in. And the implicit understanding of that is that we can't talk about anything that we did wrong, which includes things like slavery, segregation, Japanese internment camps, um, the way that we've treated indigenous people and, and put them on reservations and genocided them. Um, we can't talk about any of those things honestly 
um, or in a realistic way because it will not inspire patriotism. So if that's been the status quo <laughs> for 100 years, then you can see why any pulls to change that is going to be um, upsetting to people. And in family systems theories, we have this idea that, that systems, of particularly in regards to like of, of family, their goal is to maintain homeostasis. And so if anyone tries to shift the homeostasis of the family in any direction, the other members of the family will react in the opposite way, right? So in the case that we're using here about teaching history and critical race theory, if this, the homeostasis, the status quo, has within history, should be taught to children to inspire patriotism, it should be good things. And the pull is to move the system toward a perspective that yes, history should ta be taught to children, but should be taught realistically so that they understand the country that they live in and the way that it affects the people around them that they'll grow up with and work with and live with. So that pull to history should be more realistic generates an opposite reaction of to pull back to homeostasis, which is that history should be optimistic. And so in order to counterbalance this pull to realism, the opposite reaction has to be even more intensive. So it goes from just history should be optimistic to history should never make children feel bad at all. <laughs> right? That there should be absolutely no discussion of anything that could be remotely seen as sad or upsetting. And that's where we, that's really where I think we are with this critical race theory thing, right? Because how many of these stupid clips of these school board meetings have we seen where people are like, my children come home and say that they're ashamed to be white or they feel guilty or, you know, they feel these bad things. And I'm, you know, nobody wants their children to feel bad. But the reality is, is that you, you, you know, you can't spend 12 years being indoctrinated with the belief that America's never done anything wrong, and then you go out into the world and become an adult and realize that, of course, America has done things wrong. It's a, it's a country run, of, run by people that are imperfect. People make mistakes, and that means countries made up of people make big mistakes, amplified by multiple people. Um, and so although I understand that you don't want your children to feel upset right now, the reality is, is that, that understanding a realistic view of history will help them to be less upset later on when they do encounter these things. Um, and so I, you know, thinking of our society as a system, people are reacting to this pull to move away from the status quo by pulling in the opposite direction even harder. Um, and, and there is actually some tenets in critical race theory that can also help us understand this. And this comes from Janet Helms, who developed the stages of white racial and ethnic identity development. Uh, and I learned this in my critical race theory class. And they, the, the principle of this is that as you move from the stage one of the model to the end of the stage, the goal is for, for white people to be moving toward a more anti-racist identity and to a, a more a more easily ability to recognize things like white privilege. So the first stage of her de identity development is called contact. So that's when you're unaware of your own racial identity. You don't think of yourself as white, but you're just normal, right? And I think a lot of us live in this place. A lot of white people live in this place for a long time, right? We don't really realize that we are white 
in the same sense that people who are black know that they are black. Um, you're more likely to view racism as individual acts of meanness rather than like institutional, and you you can't recognize white privilege in this stage. Stage, and so usually what happens is like this this identity is usually you stay in this stage before you've had contact with people who are not white or contact with an event that kind of increases your awareness. So for a lot of people, I think the summer of 2020, like the the the, the, the very public nature of George Floyd's death specifically, was this inciting incident that moved people from contact to the next stage. Because it's unavoidable. It was unavoidable. And even people who, in you know, normally insist on things like that race doesn't influence these things we're able to see that like because George Floyd was a black man this thing happened to him right and because Derek Chauvin was a police officer in a system that supports racial incidents right a system of law enforcement that was how this this was able to happen specifically because of their racial identities right people were able to see that so you move into the next stage, which was called disintegration. And so this is this kind of like awareness of like, oh no, like I, I'm, I am white, right? Like I understand that I'm white and I don't like it. And I, and maybe there's some shame, there's some guilt, um, depression, withdrawal, and you kind of get caught between like, I want to go back to how it was, right? Homeostasis. <laughs> I want to go back to how it was where I didn't have to think about this, but I also don't want to be racist and I don't, I don't want to be like a bad person, right? I want to be a good person. So that's disintegration where it's kind of like the, it's almost like the initial shattering after you encounter the event. The third stage is called reintegration, where you feel pressured by others to not notice racism. Um, these feelings of guilt and denial are transformed into fear and anger toward people of color. Um, you may feel inclined to blame the victim. You may choose to avoid the issue of racism, right? Just like not even talk about it rather than um, engaging in, in a non-racist identity or non-racist discussion. Um, and feeling like there are no right answers and that to be white is to be wrong. So what does that sound like? <laughs> it sounds like a lot of the stuff that we are hearing in the news about white or about critical race theory. And the unfortunate reality is that in, even from Helms's work and other people who have built off of her model, there are people who get stuck in the stage, who get stuck in the hostility, who get stuck in the anger. And it just feels, it feels bad. It feels bad to be white and it feels bad to not be seen as a good person, right? To assume that you're seen as a bad person because you're white. Um, and to and to not be able to move past that feeling of guilt that, that now is, is coming out as anger. And people get stuck here, right? And, it, and the reason why we get stuck here is because disintegration is too painful. We can't go back to feeling just guilty and sad. So we have to kind of move forward into reintegration. But the next stage is, is pseudo-independence, which is where you begin to abandon beliefs of white superiority, you begin to understand, at least intellectually, that, that white privilege is not fair and that um, racism does exist. Um, and, and eventually you move into immersion and autonomy, which are more anti-racist stages, right? You move toward the edge. But people get stuck here in reintegration because it is really hard to move on and to be able to say that even though I may have had a hard life or even though I may have had these certain experiences that I think you know, that, that I, that I reflect on, um, I have to acknowledge that I have had a different experience because of my skin color. And that's really hard to deal with, 
right? And and I do want to have empathy for people who maybe are stuck here. I want to have empathy for people who, you know, react, find out information about racism, about critical race theory, and then react very poorly. Um, and I do want to have empathy for them. But I also want to encourage you that if you know people or if you feel like you're stuck in the stage, that you don't have to stay here. <laughs> it is possible to move forward. There are more stages at the end. It does it. You know, critical race theory isn't just about acknowledging that racism exists and then just feeling bad for the rest of your life. There, there are ways to move forward. In fact, the theory itself is striving to make recommendations so that we can move forward. And so all of that <laughs> together is why I think, from a psychological perspective, it's important to understand how people are reacting to critical race theory, why critical race theory activates such a strong emotional response, uh, and, and why critical race theory is important for psychology. And, and for our lives in general, I think, to be able to understand these concepts better. Um, and I hope that this little introduction, this kind of primer on critical race theory is helpful to you, that it makes the concept a little more accessible, a little more understandable, and that next time you, you know, as we go into Thanksgiving, <laughs> and you maybe are around family members who are getting caught up in this, um, you have some information. You have some information for them and you can approach them in a different way. And do not, you don't have to make your whole Thanksgiving dinner about this, right? <laughs> you know, take care of yourself and, you know, step back when you need to. But of, of, uh, understanding where people are coming from or under, even understanding your own reaction of why maybe you react a certain way to learning about critical race theory. Um, that it, and it is possible to keep moving forward, right? So as, as always, I encourage you to keep an open mind to, you know, seek out some of these sources and, and, and understand them. Um, I really, I really did like the the Kaplan and Owings article, particularly for anyone who is um, in education. I know some of my listeners are educators. <laughs> uh, I, that article was really, really interesting. Um, and you know, if you want more of that intro, check out the the article from American Bar Association because um, that was a it was a little more accessible, a little a uh, little less academic in its writing. Um, and that's a good place to start. They just have a lot more information. And all the people that I named, you know, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and others, Janet Helms, these are great places. They have lots of books that are, are accessible that are written for a, a wider audience. And so, yeah, I encourage you to keep learning, to keep growing, um, to keep kind of engaging with this stuff and to understand that, like, yeah, sometimes we have emotional reactions to it, but that doesn't have to be the end-all be-all. We don't have to just be mad. We can keep moving on. Um, so thank you for joining me for another episode. And I will see you in the next one. <laughs> Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.